everybody. It's Tuesday night, and it's Jonesing for Jessica, a graphic policy radio podcast all about Jessica Jones. This is episode six, a.k.a. You're a Winner. Um, we are going to be talking about the Marvel and Netflix hit show, Jessica Jones. Uh, we are focused on this episode six. There will not be spoilers for future episodes, but if you're listening to this, then you definitely should have watched episode six. Um, we have had episodes for of our podcast for every single episode of the show thus far. You can go check those out at Graphic Policy or on iTunes if you look up Graphic Policy. And with us today, and I guess by us I just mean me because my co-host Brett actually can't be here. So with me today, I have two awesome guests. I have uh, Sarah McCary and Elle Collins. Uh, Sarah is uh, also found at, a, at The Rejectionist, is the author of the novels All Our Pretty Songs, Dirty Wings, and About a Girl, the editor and publisher of the chat book series Guillotine, or Guillotine. Uh, her books have been nominated for the Norton Award, shortlisted for the Tiptree Award. She is recipient of a fellowship from the McDowell Colony. She has written for the New York Times, Glamour, Book Riot, Tor.com, and others. Um, so she's definitely coming from a literary background. And this is one of the reasons why our first guest on the show, Sarah Jaffe, told us that we totally needed to set up to have her on the show is because Sarah was also a full-time advocate and case manager in a domestic violence shelter for over a decade. Um, she's currently the media coordinator of the Duala Project, which is a volunteer-run New York-based organization that provides free, compassionate care to people across the spectrum of pregnancy, including birth, miscarriage, and abortion. Our other guest joining us tonight is Elle Collins. She's a, po- a writer and podcaster from the Appalachian region. Elle hosts Intuit, which is a podcast about positivity and pop culture. I listen to it regularly. It's a heck of a lot of fun. The last two episodes were about um, the Justice League cartoon, which is awesome, and about Jubilee. And uh, there actually was an episode about the Jessica Jones alias comics book series that folks should go back and get, Um, uh, as well as co-hosting the upcoming Hard Times podcast, a queer feminist podcast about professional wrestling. Oh, my gosh, that's awesome. Uh, Elle is a contributor at thecomicsalliance.com, as well as a staff member of Switchback Books, which is a feminist poetry press. If you're at Comics Alliance and you look at those casting calls that they do where they tell you who should be cast in various superhero movies, it's a good chance it's by Elle. So welcome to the show, ladies. Oh, thank um, you. Thank you. <laughs> um, uh, so episode six, um, you know, was a heavy baby of an episode um generally speaking <laughs> we go through the uh show sort of from the beginning just as, as a starting place but feel free to jump around chronologically uh, i do just want to give our listeners some quick context um what are each of your relationships with the, the show uh, and the comic series if you have read the comic series do you want to start sarah um, sure. I have never read the comic series, and I watched um, I watched the whole show, but I'm not really a superhero person at all, so this is sort of my first um, superhero experience. <laughs> ah, this is unusually good and an oddball, so. <laughs> yeah, and what about, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and Al, I know you obviously have read the comics extensively. I had a podcast about yeah, it. Yeah, I... Was, I actually started reading uh, the comic when it was originally coming out, which I guess was like a little more than 10 years ago now. Um, yeah. So I've I've read it a few times. Um, I've read, I mean, I've read a lot of comic books. I actually wanted to comment that I didn't realize 
until uh, when you first asked me to be on the show, I didn't realize that I was going to be on an episode that doesn't have Trish Walker in it. Um, but that's yeah. probably for the best because I could talk about Hellcat all day. And that's, that's not really what the show should be about. <laughs> a future show, perhaps. And um, definitely going to be cool. I, I, I have to wonder, like, what people who don't know, like, about all of that make of these sorts of – because, like, people – I don't know. It's sort of been out there, but I guess I don't want to quite go down that path right now. Um, so uh, starting from the start of the episode, we have our very first voiceover that is not from Jeff. Uh, it, it's sort of contextualized in a way that makes me think that maybe that intro that, he, that you hear in the beginning, um, which is revealed to be Malcolm, uh, is part of the monologue or monologue is the wrong word, but part of the monologue that he gives at the very end of the series when he's sitting at the um, survivors club meeting and talking about his experiences, because otherwise we really are sort of just having Malcolm's voice coming in out of nowhere and uh, beginning the episode. And I just don't think we've had anybody else other than Jess have a, a voiceover narration moment till now. I also hadn't heard him really sober much, so it took me a moment to even recognize that it was Malcolm. I actually thought, I agree that it's an interesting choice to start the episode. I thought it was probably contextualized within the first scene where we see Malcolm in the episode, which is where he's laying on Jessica's couch talking to her about Kilgrave's powers. That could be no, true. I think that's how I, like, that's how I read it, too. Okay. That might very much be that much very much be the case, but it's interesting though because it goes from that until the very stylized um, poker scene, which is, I mean, I almost like where it has the match going off and everything is in black. I thought of like Tarantino actually for a moment, but yeah, I can see that. It was so stylized and definitely different from the look of the usual show. You know, you have the, the hand lighting a match, the tiny light just on Kilgrave, the sort of like macho posturing moment, the bad men sitting around a table. It just kind of felt like a Tarantino moment. Right. And there's a moment where it sort of seems like he's almost doing something non-coercive. And then you realize that, you know, obviously he's not actually um, playing poker ethically with <laughs> people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was pretty. It was pretty dramatic. It was a. I thought it was a really well done scene. I when he has tell says, "Ladies, tell us we all have balls," and the ladies all say in unison, "You all have balls." I I kind of died because that I <laughs> yeah, think is what. <laughs> that's like what men playing poker want you to say to them. I think usually <laughs> like that sort of like non in a, in a normal situation. I imagine if there's a table full of dudes playing poker and they're just like trying to you know like be like, yeah, we're men. And they want the whole world to confirm that for them. Maybe yeah, I'm just not those men. gambling. Exactly. Well, and it's also a really specific choice, right? Because he could, he can go, he can walk into a bank and ask for a million dollars. He doesn't have to play poker um, or not really play poker in order to, so he's sort of participating in this weird, like, noirish send up of, of a poker game, like specifically for that, for that purpose. Mm. That's true. But I actually have another thought, too, which is something that kind of comes along later when you see him trying to buy or successfully buying the house. He has mm-hmm. moments where he tries to operate within certain systems because it will make life easier for him. And ripping off some guys at a poker game 
is easier than robbing a bank. Because if you're robbing a bank, you're actually breaking the law. And if you're robbing off some guys in a poker game, that's probably an illegal poker game. Like, what's really going to come of it? Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah, those guys are definitely not going to call the cops about what happened. And the head against the pole was just brutal. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. Um, Part of what's interesting about that poker scene is that you don't, like, that's one of the only, possibly the only time you see Kilgrave in an environment where, like, he's around such, I mean, this is all coding because we don't really know these guys, but they seem like such bad guys that we don't really worry for them. We're not really, like, we're not really against Kilgrave in that scene to the degree that we are in basically every other scene he has in the entire series. Wow. Yeah, yeah, that makes totally sense. Point. That makes sense. We then have Malcolm on the orange couch. I'm really into the orange couch. I actually would love that couch myself. <laughs> um, uh, sitting in Jess's uh, office house apartment. And they have an interesting debate over whether or not it matters how he does what he does. I really enjoyed Malcolm's line, which is, I know his powers aren't magic the same way I know elves don't exist. Which is sort of like, you know, if they were allowed to say mutants, like in the X-Men books, you know, that might even be a word that people would use, but they're not allowed to. But it's an interesting question, like how, Sarah, did you like get hung up at all watching the show thus far about how his powers work or anything like that? Is that something you think much about? Um, No, honestly, I mean... I I think I'm willing to go like there there's there's just so much interesting stuff happening in the show that um for me it's like a really easy suspension of disbelief but you know like these are the rules of the universe that you go into and you don't need a lot of like mechanical explanation for um for why why they work or why their um what their backstory is as to how they have these these powers. Hmm. Al, do you remember if he's actually oh. a mutant? Or if, he's match- or if his powers are mystical in nature or, like, whatever? Um, in the comics, his powers were created in some kind of chemical accident. Also, he was a Russian spy because he was created in the 60s. Oh, of course. <laughs> um, That's, you know, like you do. Of course, as long but, as I'm, yeah. you know, uh, getting really nerdy for a second. What, what's funny on a sort of meta level about Malcolm's line is that Technically, the show is supposed to take place in the same world as the Thor movies, which means elves <laughs> do exist. <laughs> that's true. Oh, that's really funny. Yeah, that's like the, true. The bad guys in Thor 2 were literally elves. Right. <laughs> right. That's funny. I, I don't know well, to what I don't extent. I don't know if I can get yeah. out of Kitchen much. <laughs> <laughs> At least not lately, shit. But, um, not lately, no. Yeah, well. <laughs> I just think it's interesting. Like, he really wants to figure out, like, how his powers work. And at first, I just thought it was, like, a question of, like, Malcolm thought that figuring out how his powers work would somehow reveal something useful to them in their cause to stop him. But, like, looking at his conversation that he has with the support group later on, I realize, and I think this is what Jessica thought as well, which is why she was exasperated with him, that he actually wants to understand his powers because he wants to know if what he felt 
if what Malcolm felt at all was real. And that's why Malcolm wants to understand the powers, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. Putting things together based on things that I'm seeing in the show, it's almost like it's communicating well. <laughs> but, um, yeah, because yeah, I, I first, this, you know, Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, please go ahead. You guys um, are totally watching coming this show off. all about that. Comics. <laughs> okay, great. Watching the show as a non-comics person, it also, um, and as, as a person who's more looking at, I guess, how the narrative works and what kinds of choices the the writers are making, it it feels in some ways like the writers are also not very interested in the actual, you know, sort of rules of, of the mutant universe or, or whatever the comic, that, that, that's like an imposition that they're working around in order to use um, this idea of mind control as like a very obvious um, discussion of violence and, and how people live with trauma and um, specifically women, um, well, I guess mostly specifically white women in, <laughs> in the show, but um and so I, I don't know, like, it doesn't totally seem like it's that important to them to explain um, or to, I don't know if that's, if, if they break a lot with the comic, um, Ellie can speak to that better, obviously, but it seems like they're discarding some of that in order to, to get to the bigger, um, or to get to larger issues about, about violence and trauma. Yeah, totally. It's interesting you know, to me, though, because... It comes from that comes from the the comic, specifically Alias, the Jessica Jones comic, is also very, like, the whole thing with that series was that it was very grounded compared to most of what Marvel was publishing. It wasn't really interested in, you know, Kilgrave's origin or Jessica's origin. It was interested in, you know, the sort of uh, street-level story that it was telling. Yeah, oh, that's yeah. Really interesting. It's just interesting, though, because like, to me, when I first heard him spitballing about that, I assumed that he was trying to think about it in terms of, like, if I understand how the powers work, then I can stop them. And that's just not where his head is at, understandably so. You know, I, I think about those things because I'm looking at it from the outside and trying to, like, solve a problem. But that's not, yeah. you know, where you are when you're in that problem or when you're a su- survivor of that kind of, you know, violence. I. I, you know, I want to talk about Jessica's door, her glass. We talk about Jessica's door a lot on this podcast because her door is like a big symbol of all kinds of things. But how disconcerted her and Malcolm were at seeing like the shadow of somebody who's a guy and they can't tell who it is through the, um, not the shadow, but the, uh, the, just seeing the outline of it um, through the window really makes you think about like how consistently having that kind of frosted waved glass opening in your door is going to kind of always have a disconcerting effect because you can always tell if there's somebody out there, but you can't actually figure out who they are. She doesn't have a peephole or anything, you know? And True. it's a very noir door. It's like a detective's door, but really yeah, it's not suiting all, any of the actual needs. <laughs> it's like... Yeah. <laughs> Although I think Luke Cage is actually pretty recognizable through that door because even his silhouette is handsome. It's true. And, and, and he is a large individual. He definitely stands out. But they definitely were like, you know, like there was a second of like, is it him? And then it was like, have you been Kilgrave? Which, of course, now is going to be a thing, I think. I think that, you know, this, this is the episode, obviously, where Kilgrave becomes something that's spoken of by more people than who had spoken about it before. But um, they verbed him. Kilgrave has been verbed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so he hires Jess 
to do a detective job. She doesn't want to have to do it, but she'll do it. Um, she calls him out on his, like, are you protecting somebody else or not thing. It, it's it's going to be interesting, you know, to see how that theme continues or, or doesn't. I mean, it, okay, that theme will continue as the show progresses. I can at least say that much. But, um, and then we got to, just anybody see anything else about that scene of him hiring her that they want to hit up? Um, I just want to say that something that I really like about this episode is that Jessica has a case. Um, Mm. Because if if I had one complaint about the series as a whole, without getting into later spoilers, um, it's that, like, I wanted Jessica to be a detective. And I want, like, the story with Kilgrave works really well, but it so dominates the series. And I wanted to get to see a little more of... Uh, Jessica like doing her job and being good at it. Uh-huh. So anytime someone hires Jessica to do detective work on the show, it makes me happy. Totally. Yeah, I, I totally mean, I agree with that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I've been saying that it feels like every episode, because it's well written, has a story arc that involves her solving a question, like answering a mystery. But it is usually her own mystery, or like a mystery that's part of solving the Kilgrave problem. It's not usually a mystery that she's been hired by somebody to solve. Um, right. You know, and and I, you know, I had when I first found out that Kilgrave was going to be in season one, and I've spoken to this a bit before, so it's been there. But like, I was really upset because I wanted to have the character to have a chance to establish herself without it being all about this trauma that happened to her. And I was really worried that like having everything be about Kilgrave would just posit her as like a perpetual victim. But I, I and like make it as if like this trauma that happened to her is the only thing in her life that's ever happened. But I, I have to say, I've still been, I'm still happy with the show, you know. Even yeah, that was fear. very much yeah. my fear about the series as well. Um, and it's not exactly that that fear okay. did not come true, but it ended up being mm-hmm. better than I expected within the context of that fear coming true. If you see what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I would agree with that too. Like it is really frustrating to see because she is such an interesting character, and when she does get to do her own thing outside of that, like central question of you know where is he and what's he doing, I think it's a lot more interesting to me as a as someone watching it. Um, but I would also say that I think they handle the show handles the trauma that happens to her and the arc of that um, relationship with that with the with her abuser basically. Um, really well, even if I was sort of disappointed that it ends up being um, sort of the focus of the show. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. We we cut to a scene that I just thought like was, this is one this scene is like one of the actual, re- there's a number of reasons why we really wanted to have Sarah on this particular episode, but this upcoming scene is one of the reasons why um, Hope has gotten beaten up. Uh, she won't ask for isolation. Hogarth, the lawyer, complains about how Hope is quote, expensive and exasperating. And I just thought about, like, you know, how often, you know, people who want to have sympathy for victims, but when the victims aren't acting the way you think that they should be acting, like standing on the outside of it, you know, people are kind of, like, pulling their hair out, like, why won't she file a complaint or why won't, like, that whole kind of phenomenon. I don't know if you could speak to that a little bit here or if you think it's even an appropriate moment to talk about it. That's fine, too. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think... um... Well, I, I think in some ways it was more interesting to me to look at that as, as what Hope, um, we can spoil later stuff in the show, right? Um, yeah, within, within the as, episode. As yeah, Hope absolutely. accessing, um, 
as hope, I mean, as like reproductive rights are sort of collapsing in this country, as we watch, um, I I felt like they were, um, you know, like that's not really a necessary scene or a necessary um, undertaking for hope to to take. And so I think that in some ways maybe the show is alluding to the sorts of really extensive lengths that people who are pregnant who don't want to be pregnant will go to when their their options are curtailed in terms of accessing um, accessing abortion or or um, accessing mm-hmm. birth control in the first place. So um, that was really, that was interesting to me. That was an interesting choice for sure. Yeah, I definitely want to go deep on that scene when it comes up. Mm-hmm. Um, we have uh, the exchange with uh, Sissy in the jail, which was sort of like the way it was played for laps. I can't necessarily decide how I feel about that. I'm sorry, say that again? The way that scene was ended up kind of getting played for laughs in different ways, I wasn't really sure yeah. how I felt about that. I don't know. You know, <laughs> like the whole, like, I, I felt almost like, they were, are they trying to have some sort of cute callback to Orange is the New Black? And I haven't actually watched the show at all, so I'm just speaking to it from, like, an external cultural critic standpoint. But it's like, are, are, we, are, we, are we going to act like we're just, I don't know. If anybody has thoughts about that scene pro or con of her interactions with Jesse Garcia. Um, I It's sort of part of a larger problem that I have um, with the series and with, well, with Marvel as an institution. Because mm-hmm. uh, Marvel and specifically, well, actually not specifically, Marvel, both the movies and the comics have been doing a really bad job recently of... Uh, queer representation. Yeah. And because uh, they were, you know, in the in the comic of, specifically of Guardians of the Galaxy, there is a lesbian couple that's a member of the team and they just got completely erased from the movie. And, the, and, they, were bigger, in, and they were bigger characters in the comics than like a lot of people who actually were in the movie. Like also it true. was a deliberate oversight to not, like it was a choice to exclude yeah. them. Yeah. And it feels very telling to me that Marvel finally put out a product, you know, a, a live action product that has queer characters in it. Um, specifically, I think only queer women, but it's yes. like it ended up being their series. That's all about how bleak and terrible the world is. And like, <laughs> yeah. they're like, and the queer characters that we have in the series are like, you know, an amoral lawyer and her put upon wife and the secretary she's having an affair with. And now this like burly prison woman. And it feels very like, like everything just feels kind of seedy in this way that like is not what I want out of like, I'm all about having like amoral and dark and interesting queer characters. It's not like I want them to be saints, but it just sort of feels like it's part of this overall tapestry of like how dark the world is. And that feels like a problem to me, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think this is also, um, I'm sorry, I haven't watched the first five episodes in a while. So correct me if I'm wrong, but this is the first woman of color who's not dead, right? That's on the, that's on the show that is actually speaking. Second, because there's the woman who Luke was hooking up with. Right. Okay. That's right. Sorry, I forgot about her. But, but yeah, yeah, so we also don't really have a lot of, I think that's another really serious feeling of this 
of the yeah. show is that, um, you know, the people who get to recover their agency are, are men of color and white women and, like, women of color are really pretty sidelined by the whole narrative. So that, that scene, yeah, for a lot of reasons, that scene um, didn't, doesn't say well well with me at all. And watching it for a second time, I was even more just kind of like, ugh. Yeah, yeah. And then we have, oh, my God, amazing scene with Hope. Um, you know, I had figured out, actually, by the I didn't know what was up with Hope, but by the time I saw her in the room, and by the time she said that she'd paid for her to get beaten up, by the time Sissy had said she paid for services, that's when I was like, oh, I know what happened. She paid for them to beat her up because she thought she might miscarry. Um, mm-hmm. I because like, I really was completely baffled by her getting beaten until like it was like oh she paid me to and then I was like okay this is the reason why, um, you know I I I loved I, I love how she says that you know she's like when she says she's pregnant and she's still pregnant like I said you know this didn't work I love that she, when she says I can feel it growing like a tumor I just thought that was such a great, like, just a great way to, and then, I mean, her, her her whole bit, I thought, from Hope was just awesome. You know, she's, every second it's there, I get raped again and again. My parents are shot again and again. And I just thought that was so effective. And, I mean, one of the things I want to call out is that, obviously, in the context of this show, like, you know, she was raped. So it's, you know, it's really, I think, obvious for a lot of people to see how her being pregnant with the fetus of someone who raped her would feel that way. But it's not even just that. Like, being pregnant by accident, even if the circumstances that got you pregnant were, like, positive, consensual sex with someone you like, being pregnant without you wanting to be pregnant still feels like you are being violated. It can still feel like you are being raped. It is not like it's contingent on it having been the product of a rape. But I just thought that was such an... uh, such uh, an effective wording of that sentiment. Yeah, I would totally agree. I really, um, I I don't watch a ton of television, but I <laughs> but I feel like usually when abortion does come up um, in in television narratives, which is not often at all to begin with, it's always presented as this extremely difficult decision where people have to, you know, like there's all this sort of like moral mm-hmm. that happens around like. Mm-hmm. Um, she's a deserving uh, person who wants an abortion and she would have the baby. You know, there's just all this, like, bullshit that kind of goes around yeah. that. And so to see a character who's just like, I don't want to be pregnant, I'm going to take care of it if it kills me, is really, I think, um, is just refreshing, even though, obviously, I mean, refreshing is maybe the wrong word because it's, <laughs> it's pretty dark. It's but, sorely needed, but perhaps, would be the... It's sorely needed, yeah. And I, and I think that is, like, yeah, it, that does speak to the reality, for sure, of of people who are pregnant and don't want to be. Yeah. As someone who does watch a lot of, as someone who does watch a lot of TV, it is very unusual to see abortion dealt with so matter of factly and without a voice of, you know, but maybe you shouldn't, which I, you know, I'm thankful that there isn't. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's, it's nice that, you know, there's nobody that's like, maybe you shouldn't at any point in, in that decision process. And so, um, I mean, Jess, she, doesn't, Jess doesn't quite, Jess is sort of like, are you sure you're sure? But as soon as she says like, that she, you know, as soon as she swallows the pill, she's like, okay, you're sure. You know, I, if I were Jess, I probably wouldn't even ask, but like, I, 
yeah, but Jess does a far better job of just taking her at her word than anybody else on a TV show has, you know? Yeah. I also wanted to ask you, like, two months to see a doctor when you're incarcerated is like, of course, but would it really be two, two months to see a doctor to get a pregnancy terminated, given the fact that that would probably put you outside of the legal uh, well, is, I got super nerdy about that too. I was like, well, that's actually, it would be too. Well, anyway. <laughs> um, so New York is, uh, is medical abortion, which is, um, is, uh, as opposed to an aspiration, medical abortion is when you take the two pills that cause you to terminate the pregnancy is relatively accessible in, um, in prison in New York. Um, I don't know if that's true, uh, elsewhere in the country. I think it's probably a lot more difficult to access, but, yeah, yeah, I think I think ultimately they're going through this like sort of complicated. It, it, I don't think it would be um, medical care is obviously really difficult for incarcerated people to access. But in terms of um, we don't ever know, I think, how pregnant Hope is. But, yeah, two months to get an abortion would not be um, super <laughs> likely because at that point um, it's either not doable or it's an extremely complicated procedure. But um, then we find out sort of at the end that they're going through all this like Hogarth has to be in on the loop of how Hope is getting her abortion in order for the ending to be set up. So that was sort of needlessly complicated. Um, but to, I think it's good that they but, did it. Even though, like, as a New Yorker, I'm like, even though as a New Yorker, I'm like, listen, in New York, you can get an abortion. Like, I was glad that the show sort of pointed to the problem that women have in so many places getting timely access to care. Like, yes, just this past yeah, week, a woman, absolutely. I think it was Kentucky. Do you remember? Uh, Tennessee. The woman who um, are you talking about the woman who is who's being prosecuted right now? Yes. Yes. Do you want to go and talk about that real quick? Since Um, I got the state wrong, I'm really bad about um, that. (laughs) What's that? I said I'm really bad about that. Like I got the state wrong, of course. Um, Um, Well, it's it's, this is the third or fourth time that it's um, that someone has been prosecuted in the last like couple of years for um, attempting to end a pregnancy. But yeah, a woman. in Tennessee last week was arrested um, for, she was uh, 24 weeks pregnant um, and she attempted to induce an abortion with a coat hanger um, and ended up going to the hospital. um, And the fetus was delivered um, and I guess survived, which is, um, and so she was charged with attempted murder. Um, And so I think, which is horrifying. I mean, everything about the case is absolutely horrifying. Um, and Tennessee is a state where it's extremely, extremely difficult to access abortion. Um, mm-hmm. So I think, yeah, and and even though it's not necessarily that complicated in New York for someone to, even in prison for someone to access abortion, I think it's nice, not nice, but I think it's valuable for the show to, again, kind of allude to, A, the lengths that people who are pregnant will go to to not be pregnant if they don't want to be pregnant, and B, how difficult and unnecessarily difficult it may be for them to to terminate those pregnancies. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I definitely was glad that they handled it that way, even though I was sort of like, it couldn't possibly be like that in here. But uh, yeah, and then so you know, her taking the like one pill. I, 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 you know, there's like different kinds of like of um medical or I should say medication like abortions as opposed to having a like minor surgical procedure situation, but. I kept thinking, like, her taking the pill, like, they just have her, the fact that they didn't have, like, actual professional medical personnel really supervising it, like, it, it was all just very sketchy. I mean, I, you know, bri- like, I, plus, if she's able, 
if she's like not far along, if she's, if she's like not pregnant enough to like actually need a real like medical, like a real like medical termination, a real abortion, and she just can still get the pill, then there wouldn't be any like fetus for in a, in a quantity enough for like Hogarth to be able to like harvest as, as, as evidence. Am I, I mean, right? You can, um, you can actually get a medication abortion, a med abortion up to nine weeks, at which point there would be some, um, there would, yeah, there's always going to be tissue, um, and at nine weeks, a fetus is, um, it doesn't really look like a person, but it's, 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 oh, it's a comp, I mean, yeah, it's a little okay, bit but there's silly, something, but there's actually some matter that you would identify that there's matter, yeah, there's, there's matter that's okay. like, you could, Fine. There would be um, gen- genetic material at least. There would be right, genetic right. material, yeah. Yeah, I guess I sort of think of it as being something that would be like practically invisible. And how would you do that? But if, if like by the time you're able, you know, like if, if if like if it's big enough that like, you know, you could see it, then maybe you would actually have to go and have a surgical abortion. But okay, well, I'm glad somebody knows more than I do. Um, but that definitely was a moment I have. I was like, how are you going to pass something big enough to be found through your cervix, like? just in bed as opposed to, I mean, she should have been on the toilet actually. Right. That's normally. Cause that's yeah, I don't think more you comfortable. Would want to do that in bed, but um, yeah, it's not as I comfortable think, for people. And it's also just totally, it's not really clear. Um, I think that, that, that final scene is um, not final scene, but the scene where she's actually presumably like going through the cramps and, and, um, and whatnot is framed sort of weird because you don't know, like Hogarth is having this conversation with the, someone who's, I guess, a, a prison nurse, but you don't know, like if they know that she took medication to have an abortion, like what, you know, like it's just not clear yeah. what, what is happening there. And I wish that had been, um, it's not like really important in the larger scheme of the show, but it, it doesn't make a lot of sense. <laughs> I mean, I was curious, too, but then I was also just really glad that Jerry was like, I was like, yes, this is going to be really helpful for the case that they're going to actually be able to produce, like, if they can produce something, physical evidence that would be of this man's existence, essentially, you know, then that would be really important. Um, Yeah, and again, a lot of people um, who are pregnant in states where they can't get access to an abortion are also, like, trying to get... Um, medical abortions, you know, off the internet or or through like going to Mexico or doing whatever they can to get. And so it's not unrealistic at all that someone would be doing this um, without medical assistance and unsupervised by any kind of professional. Um, mm. And I don't know if that if that if the show is specifically alluding to that or if that's just me reading my experience into it. But um, that's certainly not unrealistic. But yeah, this is definitely like it was really impressive I, to have like an abortion happening in like a Marvel, like a Disney, you know, product when so much media has is like just won't represent abortion, and it's like just they always have to act like oh he lost the baby she lost the baby, like no she had an abortion because everybody has freaking abortions like if I have to have if there's like one show that ever says that again I will like. Well, this is why I watch cartoons, actually. But if I did watch shows that were made for adults, <laughs> and if somebody ever said <laughs> that they, quote, lost the baby, the way everybody always feels the need to say it in dramas, I would brush my hand through the, the television screen and punch them. I, <laughs> pretty much. Like, I, I, you know, we, we, our show, we very much are, like, our audience are, like, progressive political people, like, that's sort of, like, who we're aimed at. But, like, 
for anybody who doesn't know the statistic off the top of your head, like one out of three women has an abortion in her life. So like chances are kind of like everybody who knows had an abortion and that's a very normal thing and it happens all the time. And that's really ridiculous that in TV they make you have to act like you have to apologize or that it's a big deal and that you're going to equivocate. Like, I'm sorry. I, I recognize I'm from New York and all my friends are like New Yorker, like, like lefty type people, but I, Nobody I know has ever equivocated over having an abortion. Everybody was like, good God, I need to have an abortion right fucking now. So the idea that equivocating is normal, I think, is a performance that a lot of people do at times because they feel like they're supposed to feel like they equivocate. I'm sure that there are people who equivocate because they don't know what they want. But, like, the idea that, like, everybody is going to just be like, oh, I don't know, you know. I I feel like a bitch for, like, putting that particular tone to it. But I'm so sick and tired of that being the only narrative that we see. No, it is really nice to see a narrative about about someone being very certain. Um, and I think that, yeah, the more we talk about it, the more it's like it is a really difficult decision for a lot of people because of, like, economic injustice and they can't parent a child because they can't get a job that pays, you know, and they can't get child care. And, like, so a lot of times people will maybe want to have a child and then just have absolutely no network with which they can support it so they can't make the choice to be a parent. Um, mm-hmm. But in terms of and in terms of the procedure itself, you know, like an, an early, a first trimester abortion is a very, very straightforward, simple procedure. It takes like five minutes. Um, and so I think the more we can, yeah, the more the more abortion gets normalized in the media, um, even, you know, maybe someday in a show where the fetus is not the result of a mind-controlling mutant <laughs> who also made the yeah. study shooter parents. <laughs> um, yeah. It's really nice to see, like, other alternative narratives about abortion that are that are much more reflective of, of people's lived experiences than, yeah, someone having some kind of big moral framework around what, for many people, is just a really straightforward and simple decision. Um, I mean, and I really love, like, when she was like, please happen, like, please go quickly, please go quickly, like, her certainty and, like, please work fast, sorry, that's what her lunch is, and her certainty of just immediately gulping it down. I was just like, anyway, that made me very, I feel like really respected the show for respecting that story, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, me too, yeah. I I I wasn't crazy about her like I want to live I want to have children but I won't give life to this thing I won't do it because I just like I don't know she's too young to be saying I want to have children event like no offense she's like in college I like the, I don't know the women who say I want to have children someday who I, but I want to have an abortion now who I know are all older than she is like like I if that was a little bit I mean I don't know maybe there's somebody but like she's like 20 no she's like she's like 18 like come on I don't know. Yeah, that I, made me a little bit I, I agree with that. And in fact, like, not only is she that young, but she is in fact, you know, in prison for shooting her parents. And it's like the idea that she would be thinking about that, that she, that she would be in a mental place to say, I want to have children someday. seems weird to me. Yeah, exactly. Like that just wasn't like when I was that young, that wasn't even a stem statement that was part of like women. I know's like calculations about having abortions. It's certainly something I hear when people are older, you know, where I'm, I'm old now, but like, yeah, when I was that age, it was not even like in the equation. Yeah, but totally. I see that. And I think that maybe is like sort of their concession to hope having some kind of moral dilemma. Um, I think, I mean, it is also true that many people who have abortions go on to have children as well. So maybe that was sort of oh, their yeah. nod to like, 
you know, the whole spectrum of reproductive decisions that someone makes over their lifetime not being limited to one or the other. Um, That's true. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, just we take it as a given that, of course, people have abortions and then have kids later because statistically speaking, that's obviously the case. <laughs> but yeah, um, but that is, yeah, it's probably a good reminder to other kinds of audiences that just because you don't want to have the baby of someone who raped you when you were 18 doesn't mean you never want to have children under other circumstances. So... Yeah, and the the other thing that they never quite say on the show, um, you know, we were talking earlier about how we don't really know exactly the nature of Kilgrave's powers. So, like, but aside from just being an unwanted pregnancy and being the product of rape, this child could literally be a monster. Like, we don't know that mm. if the baby was carried to term that it wouldn't be like him. Wow. Right. Right. That's very true. Whew. Um, then we have the uh, photo alert uh, that just, like, her little timer going off reminded me of, like, people who have, like, a timer to remind them to take a pill at a certain time. Like, my dad has his eye drops timer, and he has to, like, go and put in his, like, eye drops. And it, it's, I don't know, that's sort of what the photo alert on her phone thing started to feel like to me. Maybe that's overly specific, but um, <laughs> but it's what the alert said. And then she goes and she performs for his camera. And you go and you see it's been five days. She's been doing this for five days. So that was – it's hard to kind of track time through this show. I don't really know how to tell time as it passes usually. Yeah, yeah. it's not usually clear. Um, so then they're going to doing detective stuff. Jessica does her fake voice. You know, they're looking through the trash. That's what real detective work is. Um, Jessica, you know, she's got a great solution for finding this guy. I got to applaud her that, you know, finding that he'd entered some raffle, pretending to be the raffle is smart. It's smart. Yes. Um, I, going into the show, was already a big Kristen Ritter fan. Um, and uh, I'm a, a defender of uh, Don't Trust to Be in Apartment 23. Um, so Jessica doing that voice just made me really happy on a gut level. Does she um, do silly voices a lot in that other show? Sure. Well, she's kind of in Don't Trust the Beast, she's kind of a con artist. Um, so like that sort of like calling on someone on the phone and doing a fake silly voice to trick them into doing something is very much the sort of thing oh. she would have done on that show. Cool. Oh, so I guess we can tell she's having a lot of people watch the show now because everybody I know is talking about don't want, don't trust the bee. So that definitely yeah, it's, helping. It's a really, really silly show, but I actually think it's really underrated. Um, and it's a show mm-hmm. that was like created and written by and starring women, which is still more rare than it ought to be. Totally. Well, that's cool. Thank you. Any other thoughts on detective-y stuff? I, I feel like Luke was a little bit exposition-y in this episode. I mean, sorry, he has, like, huge emotional moments. But until the end where he gets that huge emotional moment, well, that's not true. He has some others in, the, in throughout as well. But I don't know. Luke has a few moments of being exposition-y, I felt, in this episode. You know, and then he's like, you have a yeah, walk you home this time of day. I mean, I, well, I, there's really no time of day in which there's sun out in which somebody would have a, long, a, longer, a longer subway commute than any other time of day. Frankly, really, unless she's on the JMZ, like, but okay, it's still reasonable to ask her to get on the bike. And so they get on the bike 
and he, she, she, you know, she just, he, I like, he's like, I don't, I'm not going to infect you. And at first she doesn't hold him. And then she does. And you get this close up of her hands. There's a lot of hands close ups in this episode. Um, something that I did like with Luke in this episode, and I don't remember if we've quite gotten to it yet. Cause I forget in what scene it first comes up, but that's okay. Mm-hmm. There is a, there's a couple of moments in this uh, episode where I feel like Luke is very aware that, like, that Jessica is, you know, a pretty white lady and he's a black man because mm. he's constantly telling her, like, don't break the law out in public. Wear your motorcycle helmet. Don't start beating these guys up on the street. Like, we don't need the cops showing up. It's totally good, yeah. That's really good. Um, the, like you know, the other moments, though. He's, right, he's obviously, like, we, we don't know his backstory yet within the context of the series, but he's obviously reached a point where, like, he has learned how to stay off of everyone's radar despite being, you know, a black man in New York City with superpowers. Yeah. No, that's a really great point that he's the one who has to bring those things up to her. Mm-hmm. A lot of, yeah, I mean, I'm just going to bookmark that the, the, this close-up of her hands as a hands moment, and then we'll go back to talk about some more ones as they arise. Um, so Malcolm decides he's going to go and give Luke the third degree and determine his intentions um, and ask, he's been approached by a British guy. And then Malcolm goes ahead and basically tells Luke the story, which was really not his story to tell. Right. <laughs> But it sets up, you know, her reconciliation with Luke this episode for the duration that it lasted, which is brief and tragic and sad. Um, oh, I just oh, I want to really appreciate um, sober Malcolm's outfit too. Like, I really, <laughs> I'm oh, really yeah, a fan. Of um, he's got like some different good sweatpants, like fashion sweat combos. I think in this episode, and his scarf is like a little jauntier, like. Silver Malcolm has um has has really upped his game in the sartorial department, which I appreciate. Aw, that's awesome. I yeah, like he's only been off of heroin for a few days also, so I'm still just sort of like, is that how is he functioning this much? I, I don't really have a great expertise on coming off of hard drugs, but I I'm impressed. Well again, we don't totally know how much time has passed, right? He could have had a few a little bit of time to to sort of recover. Yeah. Oh, yeah, he's looking good. He's looking good. Malcolm is looking good and getting in people's ways and being a Yenta. So Malcolm is back. (laughs) Um, I want to talk briefly about the scene with Pam and uh, Hogarth where she proposes to her. Um, Pam is very, I'm sorry, Hogarth is very performative in this. She says, I mean, okay, Jess is rude to Pam, needlessly so, and that's fucked up, and Hogarth calls her on it, and Hogarth says, Pam, who I want to spend the rest of my life with, and she glances up at Pam, like, significantly to say that. (laughs) Um, And then they go and she proposes, and I totally get why somebody who loves somebody deeply um, and might want to marry them would not want to say yes until so that person's divorce has gone through. That totally makes sense. But I would imagine that if you were 
like temporarily turning somebody down on a marriage proposal and you really loved that person, you wouldn't just sort of like walk out of the room after like a brief touches their hand. It would kind of be like an important moment for you to be demonstrably affectionate to them to show like, no, I really do love you. I just can't do this right now, but I really do love you. And it felt like Pam just sort of like left her there. That whole relationship is not, I don't know. Yeah, that wasn't I agree. a real sentence, but I agree with your not real sentence anyway. Yeah. It just it, it just feels like it's not quite all there and it does it I, I'm not sure if that feels like are we supposed to think like that there's problems in that relationship that they're not talking about, or is it just not written that well? I think we're supposed to think that there's problems, but I don't know. I just can't believe like if somebody turns you down and you're not immediately like covering them with like kisses and how much you love them, then like that would be kind of a breakup moment. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I don't yeah. know. And I find it weird that, uh, that someone like Hogarth would want to jump right into another marriage mm-hmm. considering the problems that she's having with her divorce. Like just date Assets. yourself for a while. It'll be okay. Yeah, I mean, there's huge assets issues in terms of the difference in power between these two characters. Like, it's never okay to be doing your secretary, regardless of what gender you or the secretary is. Yeah, that too. So. Um, okay, then Luke comes to the door. Luke's like, I know about Kilgrave. And Luke thinks that she dumped him because he didn't believe her about, like, whether or not there could be somebody with mental powers when she first raised it to him. So he's totally, like, thinking of reasons why... He's, well, he, why the breakup was his fault, basically. It's just, you know, a normal reaction. Um, you know, and she's, they're acting in the scene is great. They have, like, so many conversations through the door in this, in this show, another through-the-door episode between two characters. Um, and his line, you know, when she, when she lets him in and she's like, you can't fix anything. His, his line right before he kisses her, the, you are a hard-drinking, short-fused, mess of a woman, but you are not a piece of shit, is, like, really good. Yeah, that's really great. Great. <laughs> And then they have a big make out in the face of black. And then they wake up, and he's gazing at her lovingly. He's always gazing at her lovingly after they have sex. He's, like, so gazing into her lovingly all the time when they have sex, and she's so just sort of, like, having conflicted feelings. Like, every time you see them after they have sex, it breaks my heart. Because we know um, why she's feeling that way, but... Yeah, and I, I think, really I mean, love. That scene is, oh. oh, sorry. Go, go ahead. Um, something um, I, I noticed in the scene when they wake up uh, <laughs> uh, is that, like, something that I love about Jessica throughout the series is how not um, put together or glamorous she is. I mean, obviously she's played by Kristen Ritter, so she's she's gorgeous, but she's she's constantly like waking up and like falling out of bed and pulling jeans on and going about her day. Mm-hmm. They do a really good job of not making her more put together than a character like her should be. Yeah, totally. She does have a um, three thousand dollar leather jacket, though. Just why that leather jacket oh. looks so good. Is it Rick Owens? Um, Is that the story? Uh, no, it's acne. <laughs> oh. <laughs> we but I think that scene. The scene where she is like, where Luke is on the other side of the door, and um, there's more metaphor happening with the door there, is like also hard to watch in the sense that like 
you know, she could tell him what the real thing is. And, and it's like a pretty horrible thing. It's a really bad choice not to, you know? And so I think it's interesting again, that like the character, um, even though in the, like in the moral universe of the real world, which does is really reprehensible. Like, the character is allowed to do things that are pretty awful and, um, and she does get, you know, punished for them. Um, Mm -hmm. but she sort of has the freedom in the story to be like kind of monstrous herself sometimes. And like pretty, I mean, that's really emotionally manipulative and gross thing to do to someone to not spill the beans on, on why you broke up with them, um, in that particular situation. So, I thought that was an interesting I mean, scene when he's on the other side I of the door. I realize that she she thinks that if she told him why she broke up with him, like she would have to come clean about his wife, and then he would be he would react the way he reacted. You know. Well, yeah, no, that's I mean, she has the opportunity to come clean about what she did to his wife, and she doesn't. Um, and yeah. that just seems like a pretty big um, yeah problem. I mean, he's very, very violated. um, Something that I wonder about for the future of these characters, and I'm not going to spoil anything for for this show, but, um, you know, in the comics, Jessica Jones and Luke Cage have become, like, one of the major couples of the Marvel Universe. Like, they get together and stay together, you know, in a big way. And the stuff about his wife is not in the comics. And it's weird to me that... They in the adaptation they chose to make like how Luke and Jessica got together so much more problematic mm. that it's like oh, it's hard to imagine their relationship ever fully escaping that. Yeah, right. Because that's not yeah. something that you get over, really. No. Even if she wasn't, you know, even if she was under or what she was pilgrimed when uh, when that happened, it's like not a. That seems like a pretty big yeah. deal breaker. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but yeah. she wasn't she wasn't Kilgrave when she slept with Luke knowing that is the same. Exactly. Thing, you know? Exactly. Exactly. Which yeah. is a really manipulative and potentially abusive. I mean there's just a lot of really shady ethical implications going into that choice. Yeah, I mean there's a real consent issue question about like if you have sex with somebody and you don't tell them something enormous about yourself, to what extent that like it directly affects them? Like, you know, obviously he would not have slept with her if he'd known that she was responsible for his wife's death, even though it was inadvertent, you know what I mean? And then for her to consistently go and like, and then for her to consistently go and not say anything is like completely unacceptable and completely understandable, but completely unacceptable. Yeah, and it's really, I mean, it's just, there's just so many interesting ways to think about that, whether it's that, like, a, just a really problematic aspect of the show, or are they talking about, you know, people who are survivors of really severe trauma often make decisions that are not very good ones, or that are morally um, ambig- ambiguous, or that are not ethical in order to survive, basically. Um, and and so, you know, is that what, what they're talking about there? I don't know. If it's, it's just hard sometimes to tell how... Um, how much I want the show to be smart and how smart it actually is. <laughs> so mm-hmm. um, I would like, I would like to think that they're talking about, um, about like sort of complex narratives of, of survivors um, and the decisions that they may make that are really, you know, destructive. 
But um, I don't know if that's just me really wanting to see that kind of stuff explored on screen or if the show itself is doing that consciously. Yeah. So it's hard. Um, Oh, so she goes, she has to like run into the bathroom to do her photo thing, to send it to Kilgrave because her alarm went off and she has to take her eye drops. No, she has to go and take photos of herself non-consensually to placate her stalker who somebody else, oh, God, I forget who it was, on one of our earlier episodes had connected this with, like, the all the, like, pics, please, like, shit that, like, boys pull on girls now, apparently. Like, they demand, like, boob pics from girls, apparently. It's a thing that happens to young mm-hmm. people. It's just awful. Um, so she has to go and do that. And the thing is, she went into the bathroom to do that, and she hides it from Luke. She doesn't tell Luke what she's doing, he can tell something's going on. He can tell something's wrong, but he eventually, he's just like, uh, okay, I'll, I'll see you later, Jones. Uh, bye. Um, I feel like she was just probably ashamed that she was like, had made these, had made this acquisition that she has acquiesced to kill Gary's demand or something like that. I don't know. I wasn't exactly sure why she didn't tell him, but I think shame was the, was probably what I imagined would be the reason why. Um, yeah, that seems. Yeah, that seems like a good reading. So, then we have the. She goes and she gets the information from the woman. And I'm sorry, they whatever. There's oh my god, I completely brushed over a fight scene because I had nothing to say about the fight scene. Do you guys have anything to say about the fight scene? I don't have anything. Other than to the say cage does not hurt scene. dogs. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh yeah, no, I do not. Yeah, the, yeah, the do- not hurting the dog is, is very nice in the show. That is so relentlessly violent. I really appreciated the dog. I like that getting attacked by guard dogs is one of Luke's specialties. Oh, totally! I totally <laughs> resonated for me. I was like, yes, and he has another like sweet Christmas moment, which uh, Sarah like hit one of the characters' catchphrases from the comics is "Sweet Christmas," and like. It was from the 70s, so it was sort of like because they weren't allowed to curse, and also they really love colorful language in comics. Um, and I always kind of have to ask my like non-comics reading people, like, what do you make of that catchphrase? <laughs> Is it weird to you, or do you just sort of buy it as like a character moment? Um, I don't even remember it, so I guess it didn't stand uh, out. <laughs> okay, so that's helpful to know as well. So, okay. Um, I, I think the first time he says it in the show is after they have sex the first time. Yes, it is. Yeah. And then the second time is when he sees the giant grow house full of weed. Yes. Yes. It was very well placed. It was a very well placed Sweet Christmas. I actually wasn't sure if the show was going to ever do it again because I could imagine the show being like, okay, we dotted our eyes of like doing this thing that the fans are going to demand. Um, and then they did the... Uh, they did the actual, you know, thing, and it was like, okay, well, you're doing it again. I applaud you. This is a well-placed one. So, but, yeah, I don't really have anything to say about the fight this time. I don't know. She threw people through things. Yeah. It was effective. Do you know what was really it effective? Did what it was, at the end of the, was at the end of the fight when she runs out with a guy, um, you see this look on Luke's face, he looks like sad and lost, but he doesn't look scared because he could totally take these dudes out. 
but he's disappointed mm-hmm. and sad that she's leaving. It's kind of mm-hmm. weird. Yeah. Oh, random New York facts. So um, they're over on Delancey Street when they go to meet, uh, when they go to Antoine's old apartment. I'm sorry, where they thought Antoine was hanging out and then he wasn't. Not Yancey Street. So in the comics, Yancey, like this is going back to the 60s, like, the character of the thing is from Yancey Street and the Lower East Side, which is clearly supposed to be Delancey Street. Um, so I thought it was interesting that in this world of the show, which is like really, you know, a very realistic world comparatively, um, they have actual Delancey Street rather than Yancey Street. But they could have just had to be like Ludlow. It would have been the same effect and there wouldn't be any like <laughs> weirdness about well- that. Of course, also, you know, the thing being a member of the Fantastic Four, Mar- Marvel doesn't have the uh, TV and movie rights yeah. to him. So presumably well, over in the yeah, Fox yeah. Marvel universe, there's a Yancey Street, but not in this one. I don't know if there's an actual <laughs> intellectual property. Like, the thing is, like, Yancey Street is, like, in more than just the Fantastic Four. It's just that it's more a thing in the Fantastic Four because that's where he's from. So True, true. Oh, a thought about choice again. I, I know con- consent is certainly a big theme in this uh, in this issue. Um, uh, I had kind of joked around a lot. I see this now. Okay, um, but yeah, before the fight scene, when they go to like break into the um, the warehouse, Luke says this is a good place to hold a prisoner, but it's not. A, they're not holding a prisoner there. He's choosing to be there. Also right. just rips yeah. off another door. Um, oh, okay, sorry. Back where I was. So let's go talk about the warehouse on 14th and 8th. That's what made me jump ahead to the fight scene. The fight scene doesn't even happen right then. So Luke goes and tells a story. That's more information about Reva getting killed that we didn't have. And as he begins to tell the story, and it triggers something in Jessica's mind, and you go and you see her like a really jerky camera effect. And then you see her um, flashback to reading with Reva and Luke, and, I'm sorry, reading with Reva and, and kill grave and digging to find the, uh, the box. You know, Luke talks about he dug until he couldn't feel his hands and you see her with a pickaxe and her hands are bloody. Like Jess's hands are bloody. Like that's hard. She must've really dug really hard to have her, to to end up like that. And, you know, they pull out the box from the foundation and there's what I believe is a yellow flash drive, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I suspect it's going to be a MacGuffin. For those who don't know the term, it's like going back to a Hitchcock film, but the idea of an object that people are pursuing and the, the what the object is doesn't really matter. It's a device for the storytelling itself. Um, I kind of suspect it's a MacGuffin, but maybe it'll secretly be a file drive with the names of everybody in the witness protection program that'll be exposed if they don't, whatever it was in an earlier adventures movie. I don't remember. So maybe it actually is a thing, but I think it's probably a MacGuffin. Anyone? I guess it's hard to ask people who've seen the whole show to speculate. So yeah, I'm not going to confirm or deny that. (laughs) Okay. So I'll just tell you, I think it's a MacGuffin, but whatever. It's also yellow, like the yellow uh, misopropyl pill that she takes. They were like oh, yeah, they even that. small yellow items that we see. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, so Luke tries, sorry, Malcolm tries to get Jess to go to the support group 
just says, I'm not going to tell my shitty story because there's always someone who had it worse. And Malcolm says, it's not a competition. I feel like that's a real phenomenon that people deal with in real life. Like people feel bad about talking about bad things that happened to them because they know it could be worse and they worry that they're going to make other people feel like they're being marginalized or I don't know. I just, this phenomena that happens with that conversation is just something I see a lot. If anybody wants to weigh in on that. Yeah, I completely, I completely agree with that. Um, Cause yeah. like everybody's experiences are different and sometimes something really bad happens to you, but it's nowhere near what other people dealt with. And you're like, do, do I talk about this? Do I sound like an asshole if I talk about this? Yeah, I agree. It's really hard. And this show actually hits on that a lot. Like, you have a story about the guy whose jacket was stolen by Kilgrave, right? And he's like, I feel stupid for feeling so violated because it wasn't, you know, he just took my jacket, but I feel really violated. And I feel like the show really respects the spectrum of, like, trauma that people experience and doesn't say, like, that this guy is bad for you know, being angry that his, for feeling violated that his jacket was stolen. But this, but Malcolm is legitimate for feeling angry because he was, you know, this was done to him or this wasn't done to him. Like, I think the show really embraces everyone and says you can all, like, you're all allowed to have the feelings that you have, regardless of how, quote, bad, unquote, the thing is that happened to you. Yeah. I think that's a very powerful thing to say. Yeah, it is nice. It's also very telling about Jessica because, like, she didn't just have her jacket stolen by Kilgrave. Like, she was violated by him consistently for a long time, and she still yeah. thinks that her experience, you know, isn't uh, bad enough to be worth talking about. I know, but I actually think it's more, that's mostly an excuse for her. She just doesn't want to talk about it because she doesn't want to feel weak, and she doesn't want to see herself and the other victims. No, that's a good point. You know, but I, I mean, that's true as well, but I really do think ultimately this is the reason why. Yeah, well, I, overall, I think Jessica doesn't, she doesn't value herself. Mm. Um, she, you know, she feels, it's not necessarily that she feels like her experience wasn't as bad. She feels like she's not worth it. Yeah. I think I it's like also pretty... Pretty clearly established as a character. I can't remember if she said it at this point yet, or she says it later in the show. But I think she specifically says at some point, "I don't do feelings," which I really loved and related to quite a bit. And so, mm-hmm. I think it is also true that you know therapy doesn't work for everyone. And if something really horrible happens to you, it's not unrealistic that someone would be like, "I don't see a way that talking about this would be a useful way of of." you know, maybe it will just bring her back to the thing that happened that made her feel completely powerless and that she can't address, you know. So um, I like that she, I like that she gets to be resistant and she doesn't have a good survivor arc, you know, or like a good meaning, good behavior survivor arc. She doesn't like Mm -hmm. go to therapy and talk about her feelings and get Mm -hmm. over and, you know, like, which is just a much more realistic depiction of how people who have been through trauma um, behave. Totally. Yeah. I want to make sure we have time to hit about the house thing. This is a really interesting piece. Um, I mean, it's not a terribly interesting piece, but I think it's very significant. So we had seen uh, Kilgrave was researching, you know, houses basically, 
um, he approaches this homeowner and basically says, he, 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 when he goes into there, he has to struggle to, to speak and convince with this man without using his mind fuckery pro, uh, powers. And he even says out loud, he voices out loud, like, oh, this is really hard for me to do and interact with people this way, um, which is clear. Like, he doesn't really know how to talk to people when he isn't telling them what to do. Um, and it took me a minute to be like, well, why is he not just going to kill Grave, this guy? And I realized the reason why, and it's clear more from the end, he legally, in order to, like, he wants to have the health sale be done above the board because that protects him. So he says to the man who he wants to buy the house from, you know, if you choose to sign this, you know, X, Y, Z, he's framing all that in terms of choice. And he's deliberately not fucking with that guy's head. Uh, He doesn't fuck with that guy's head until the very end when he says, leave the house now, because the guy wants to talking about his kids. Um, And the reason why, like, Kilgrave doesn't want to fuck with the size kid is because when real estate matters are involved, it has to be above the board or else we'll get in trouble because the law cares about what you do to like a, you know, a middle-class person who's a homeowner. It doesn't actually care about that. If you're a bank, people of all different kinds have been scammed out of their houses by the banks, but, but I sort of see what it's doing here, which is saying that if it's dealing with a situation that deals with money and property, you know, and you're a person who's dealing with money and property, then like the law cares about you and you can seek recourse and, you know, getting consent from somebody rather than just forcing them to do it is helpful for Kilgrave in that situation. So that's why he bothers to get it. Yeah. Um, something I didn't notice until I rewatched the episode is he says something like, um, you have to be out by end of day tomorrow if you choose to sign which presumably would work with his powers in such a way that if in the next 12 hours the guy decides to sign, he then would be compelled to hurry ah. and get all his stuff packed overnight. Oh, that's like he smart. he would have that's to be out. Right. If he chose to be out, once he had chosen to be out, he would have to do so quickly. Yeah. Oh, that's wow. interesting, yeah. But I don't know. Do you guys think that there's something to it with regards to my point around like when Kilgrave feels like he has to use his, when Phil Kilgrave feels like he can't like he can't use his powers and he has to like operate like a regular person? It sort of shows you where the power balance lies in the world. Yeah, um, I think there's reasons that come up later why he couldn't just like tell this guy to shut himself in the basement or kill himself. And if okay. he killgraved the guy to give him the house and let him go away, then 12 hours later, the guy's going to come back with the cops and say, hey, you took my house. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so it had to be above the board, people. Um, let's uh, talk about Kil- uh, Luke's confrontation with the bus driver. Um you know, they, they do a really ramped up menacing guitar music. Like it's very eighties actually. I felt like the eighties it was like very eighties Terminator esque menacing guitar music when Luke is like sitting in the bus. It it's interesting that the woman who um works for the city is the one who tells Jess like she's going he's gonna kill that man. Like Jess didn't was just really into her own like panic and fear and like 
did not read Luke's expression properly in that moment. Right. You know? yeah. um, so do you guys want to talk about that scene, their confrontation or anything like that? I mean, I think it goes back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of, you know, consent and violation where Luke realizes that he's been violated um, and that his trust has been violated. And um, it's just, you know, it's a really hard scene to watch for for one thing. Um, I don't really, yeah, it was it was pretty devastating to watch the first time. And again, even when I knew it was coming, I was like, ugh. Yeah. yeah. Some of the wording was like, you slept with me. You made me think I could get better. You let me be inside you. You touched me with the same hands that killed my wife. If I never found out about Charles, would you have told me the truth? And then there's a silence. She can't really respond. And then he says, I was wrong. You are a piece of shit. Which is just like, it's just very, very well written, I thought, dialogue there. Yeah, I think you can really see or hear in that scene both um, how much Luke had fallen for Jessica not knowing this. Mm-hmm. Like, not that he wouldn't be angry anyway and doesn't have a right to be, but I think the things that he says that you just repeated are, like, it, you really have a sense that, like, he was starting to have real feelings for her, and that that just makes the betrayal so much worse. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Yeah, it's definitely, like, I mean, that's why he's always gazing at her, like, lovingly. Like, he is really into her. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, speaking to what you were saying earlier, is that, like, it's really interesting to hear that in the in the canon or in the comics that they become, like, this happy couple because in terms of, like, you know, actual human beings, um, I mean, granted, we have, like, mutant powers, but in this situation, but, like, in terms of, like, actual human beings, that's not a situation or, like, a or a violation that you would come back from. Come back from, like, I can't yeah. Imagine. There's, like, no happy ending out of that one. <laughs> like, oh, never mind, it's okay, we'll get over it. Like, <laughs> so, so it's, it's an interesting, it was an interesting decision, I guess, that they changed that from, uh, from the original storyline. Yeah. Um, oh, uh, you, when you, you know, the, the show was short, like after she faces down with Luke and you see that he's significantly stronger than her, uh, because he's able to forcibly, like she's pushing back and he's slowly like walking her forward. Um, you, you see her, uh, at home and she's really traumatized and she's repeating her, you know, the mantra of like listing the names of the street names where she grew up. Um, and they do that. So you remember the street names so that the reveal, of the fact that the house that that Kilgrave bought is her childhood house, like just has that much more impact. Um, I just want to let you guys know that those are not the names of streets in Queens. So (laughs) I don't know why they chose not to do the actual names of streets in Queens. Um, I do know that like, you know, that Peter Parker's address, the Spider-Man is actually real. And at one point in time, there were people whose last name was Parker who lived there and their next door neighbors were the Osbournes. I shit you not. The Osbournes, as in, I'm sorry, uh, the, the um, Peter's best friend growing up is Harry Osborne, and um, and uh, they 
that's why it, it would be funny that his next door neighbor had that last name. And in real life, and people would send letters to them, and the, the families who lived there thought it was very cute. But nevertheless, um, I read about it in the New York Times a long time ago. But yeah, like so, those are not real street names. I do wonder if they chose that because they didn't want people just like showing up in the middle of. I you know I don't know from this show if Jess is supposed to be from Queens. It certainly makes sense if she is, but they haven't said. Um, uh, um, Trish is not. I mean, I'm sorry. Trish could not be from New York. Maybe she gets in the show, but her she, her her, voice, her accent is all wrong. Um, but uh, I don't know. It was just sort of interesting. Like I, I, that reveal was a great reveal. Um, I I had figured out that the house was her house though before he peels back the wallpaper. What made me realize it was her childhood house, or I didn't know if it was her childhood house, I just knew the house had something to do with her, was from the way he touched the walls. Like, Kibrave was, like, feeling up the walls with his hands, and I was like, okay, this house is something to do with Jessica. Because when they showed you... Mm Go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to say, it's, it's really, those final moments are really creepy. And really. Yeah. Whew, peeling back the paper. But I was really, I don't know, I, I, I was proud of myself for figuring it out in advance. Yeah, I definitely <laughs> didn't figure it out until until he found the, the height chart on the wall. Oh, yeah, I, I didn't figure it out until then either. <laughs> he just, that's what, he has a certain way of, like, touching, like, things that he thinks like are related to her. It's very very creepy. Yeah, um, the, just the level of his obsession is is in, increasingly unsettling and it was unsettling to start with. Did anybody else think that the music, the menacing music from when Luke is in the was in the bus was a little bit like Terminator E? And in that context, him wearing a leather jacket and throwing a guy through a bus-like window was a little bit like, I don't know, like the, a reference that wasn't quite what you wanted it to be. If it, but maybe I was just reading into it. I didn't really um, think about that. that. <laughs> that would be really funny, though, yeah. He's, 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 he's not, walking really slowly I, like Terminator. He's like, dude, dude, dude. <laughs> I was not a big fan of that whole scene with the bus driver. It felt... Like, I get that they needed to increase the pressure to get Jessica to finally tell the truth. But it felt a little clumsy to me that there was just, like, that there was this other guy that was so um, convenient to blame for Mm -hmm. Luke to go after. Um, When, you know, he would have seemed more likely that it was, you know, just a regular not drunk bus driver that she threw his wife in front of. Right. It just seemed yeah. like it, it seemed like a convenient coincidence to create that scene um, in a way that I that didn't quite work for me. Hmm. Yeah, I could. I I don't know. It's a good point. Like the idea that there was a secret and a cover up about what happened to Luke's wife that had nothing to do with Jessica and Kilgrave seemed like a bit much. That there was this whole other conspiracy with the the transportation department. Right. Hmm. So do you guys have any other particular observations that you want to hit up about this particular episode or about the series thus far? 
Kyle, do you want to go first? I'm not coming up with anything to to start with, so so you go. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm sure people have uh, have addressed this already, but I just I do really appreciate. Um, I definitely understand the frustration that I've heard a lot of people express that the show has to be about trauma and you know and and surviving trauma and dealing with trauma, but I I don't think I have ever seen a show um, handle sexual trauma in, um, I'm trying, yeah, I mean, I'm just trying to think of a, of a time that I saw a show deal with trauma in this way, um, this successfully, and I really can't, which is, um, it's a nice addition to sort of the scope of, of narratives available to people. Hmm. Yeah, I definitely keep hearing that yeah. from people who have expertise in this. Yeah, you know, I was saying earlier that I was not thrilled at how much the show ended up being about Jessica's trauma, but as I've seen reactions to the show uh, from people who are, uh, like, survivors of assault and, and abuse and how much this show speaks to them in a in a positive way, how much it means to people, I sort of, like, I feel like that's more important like that's something that the world needed out of, I mean, who knew, but that's something that the world needed mm-hmm. out of a superhero show on Netflix more than like my, you know, Oh, I wish this show was a little less dark feelings. Does that, does that make sense? Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think also just the idea of watching a show that is about rape where no one actually gets raped on screen. is so like, it's just such a huge relief as a viewer to, to like, we don't have to see these people being, I mean, it's obviously an extremely violent show and, you know, people get tortured and, and all of that kind of stuff, but we don't have to see the sexual violence happen to the characters in order to believe them when they talk about it. Like we understand that they're, they're telling the truth um, and we don't yeah. have to witness them being violated in order, in order for us to believe it or out of some like weird, you know, Game of Thrones repeat, universe titillation. So I think that's a, just a really, it's a, it's something that I really appreciate in how the show is framed. Yeah, I agree. That that was something that also came up this year with uh, Mad Max Fury Road. Mm, um, yeah. Sort of. Yeah. Like, like the two in combination sort of make it feel like a moment, like maybe we're finally in a place at a place in our like popular fictions where we can believe women who say that they've been, raped and assaulted and not have to show it on screen. Yeah. And the violence that happens against the female characters is never sexualized that I can remember in the show either, which is, I mean, obviously um, at various points in the show, women get physically assaulted, but it's not, um, it's not sexualized. And it's also, it's just, yeah, it's really, it's refreshing, I think, the way that, that those aspects of the violence are dealt with on screen. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Well, I really want to thank you guys for joining us. We, we're coming up on the end of the show. Um, we'd love to just have each one of you guys like let our listeners know where they can find you online. Uh, if you want to start first, Elle? Sure. Um, you can find me on... Uh, Twitter at another L. Um, my name is spelled E L L E. Um, so I'm another L on Twitter, and then you can find my 
podcast uh, at intuitpodcast.com or you can search in iTunes or other podcast providers for uh, Intuit with L. Collins. And um, I'm Sarah McCary, and you can find me on Twitter at The Rejectionist, and my um, website is therejectionist.com. I love that name. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Thanks. Awesome. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us. And, Thanks uh, so much for having me. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it was great. Talk to you later. Okay, thanks. Bye. Bye. So, uh, thanks to our listeners for joining us. Our next episode is going to be next week. Um, We are taping on the 23rd in the evening. Um, Gosh, I think at 9 p.m. I should check. Our guest next week is going to be Jacqueline Freeman. She's the author of the book Yes Means Yes um, and the book Tell Me What You uh, the book Tell Me What You Really Really Want, which is an awesome uh, feminist sex guide that like is really incredible and deals a lot with questions of consent and finding out your desire and things like that. Um, so she'll be joining us for episode seven. Really excited to have Jacqueline joining us. She has her own podcast too. Um, so. Remember, you can find us online at graphicpolicy.com is our website. On iTunes, look for Graphic Policy Radio. We're on Stitcher. We're on SoundCloud. Um, you can download this episode from any of those platforms um, and you know, search for Graphic Policy Radio, and then the episodes that are about Jessica Jones are uh, the Jones and for Jessica episodes of Graphic Policy Radio. Thanks again for joining us. You can always find me on Twitter at E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn. Um, and Graphic Policy is at Graphic Policy on Twitter, on Facebook, on Tumblr, et cetera, et cetera. So thanks so guys so much for joining us. And uh, we will see you next week on Wednesday with Jacqueline Friedman for more Jonesing for Jessica. Bye. <laughs>